Who do you want to be as a leader? What are the blind spots you're missing? If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your workplace, what would you do with it? These are the kinds of questions we explore on Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. I'm a keynote speaker, emotional intelligence coach, and leadership trainer who partners with executives and emerging leaders who want to achieve extraordinary results for themselves and their organizations. You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt, and we have another fabulous guest. Today, we are going to be speaking with Mark Lesser, who is a CEO, executive coach, and Zen teacher known for his engaging experiential presentations that integrate mindfulness and emotional intelligence practices and training. So everybody who's listening, who's been a fan of the show, you're not surprised at all to hear why I'm so excited about this guest. Prior to his business and coaching career, he was a resident of the San Francisco Zen Center for 10 years and director of Tazajara Zen Mountain Center, the first Zen monastery in the Western world. Mark helped develop the world-renowned Search Inside Yourself program within Google, a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence training for leaders, which teaches the art of integrating mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and business savvy for creating great corporate cultures in a better world. His newest book, Finding Clarity, How Compassionate Accountability Builds Vibrant Relationships, Thriving Workplaces, and Meaningful Lives, is a primer in the art and practice of finding clarity through compassionate accountability. Mark presents the core tools and practices for opening your mind and heart and developing more aligned and healthy relationships and cultures, speaking to issues in the workplace, in families, and in relationships. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Kristen. Great to be here. So Mark, uh, just for anyone, I got to see, read, read one of the early copies of the book, but I highly recommend it for anybody who is on video. I really, really, really loved the book. Um, it's one of those books where I feel like I could go back and read the message over and over again. And as a reminder, cause I don't think I can ever hear these messages enough. Uh, so really, really enjoyed it. Mark, I always like to give our guests an opportunity to start off by sharing a little bit more of your story and you get to start that story from wherever you would like. <laughs> well, I was born in New Jersey uh, in a kind of a quiet, you know, I don't know, um, working class, working class family. Uh, found myself uh, at Rutgers University and um, stumbled across a book um, called Toward a Psychology of Being by Abraham Maslow. And that was, that book kind of blew my mind. Uh, I, I think, I think of myself as having been rather asleep up until that point in my life. And, and, you know, uh, people don't often know this about Maslow that you know, he's known for his hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. That book, though, uh, was a study of what made certain people really qualitatively different than other than the average person. And it was about a kind of radical self-awareness and appreciation of one's life and, and, and this sense of living more fully. And 
there was something so compelling about that and 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 how much it was not where I was at all. And and I kind of wondered like, why isn't everyone aspiring to live more fully? Why isn't everyone aspiring to appreciate themselves and their lives? Um, and uh, and I think that kind of got me to take a one-year leave of absence from Rutgers, go out to uh, San Francisco, which was where there was a lot of things like like things like meditation and mindfulness happening, which was these crazy ideas. And you know, my my one year uh, my one year leave of absence turned into ten years of living at the San Francisco Zen Center. My parents not thrilled about that. Um, but it, it turned out to be um, so formative and life changing those those that time, and and a surprising thing that happened during that that my time at the Zen Center was being asked to take on leadership roles mm. within the organization, um, and and I kind of fell in love with. Uh, the integration of kind of meditation, mindfulness, and work, and getting things done, and leadership, and decided, man, there must be there must be a way that this could be really useful. And I, um, after after I uh, after my ten year my ten year stint, I went back and got an MBA degree at New York University. I started and ran a publishing company. Uh, we were making things out of recycled paper, greeting cards and calendars. And, and that was a tremendous experience and education, which then led to uh, me getting a call from a Google engineer after I left the publishing company. How would you like to come develop a program inside of Google <laughs> of combining uh, leadership with mindfulness and emotional intelligence? And, and that was also transformative in many ways, but one was uh, igniting a passion for teaching. I, I was surprised how much I loved being, you know, for an introverted guy from New Jersey, uh, that I loved being up in front and teaching large audiences. And and then I ended up creating another company uh, with inside of, inside of Google that was around teaching and taking these practices to corporations and organizations all around the world. And uh, yeah, so that's, you know, uh, and in some way these days, much of my life is working with executives one-on-one -on -one doing workshops and um, yeah, doing what I can to bring uh, this deep work into the world of people's individuals and cultures. I feel like there's, I, I love that your journey too, it zigs and it zags and goes into all of these beautiful places. Of course, my first place of curiosity is being um, in, uh, being in a monastery for 10 years. You know, what were some of the, and I'm sure it, you could give me a boatload of so many insights and learnings that came from it. But I'm also particularly interested in how some of the learning from the monastery, you were able to take that and be able to apply it to corporate. You know, especially during when I first started teaching mindfulness and emotional intelligence leadership at Google, it was very conscious for me. It was like, 
I'm bringing what I learned in, in the monastic world into here at Google, but I need to translate the language and, and I need to, how can I make it accessible without sacrificing the depth? I, that the depth the depth was important you know and i think uh in some way it started by taking people on the inner journey of stopping of appreciating what it's like to be alive to you know this uh that there's no difference between the ordinary world and the sacred world uh and that and that that was a starting point you know, at um, at Google, they used to say our our program was about you could take off your game face, mm. right? You could let go of needing to be smart and affect and and you need you didn't need to be smart and competitive. You could kind of start by looking inward, by stopping and noticing your own the depth of your own feelings, the depth of your own heart listening to yourself and listening to others and how this was the starting point for becoming a better leader becoming a better manager becoming a better human all, all rolled into all rolled into one and it's interesting i was just writing a piece about um you know prime the priming you know how how we are influenced by our environment in conscious and unconscious ways and and everything about, you know, monastic life or spiritual life is like priming toward appreciating yourself, time, priming toward, again, this, even this word, you know, this word sacred, we are sacred beings, we are sacred creatures, and we have to live in the ordinary world of getting stuff done and work. And there's something about not ignoring either of those sides and integrating those various sides to ourselves. So I think that was the, you know, um, you know, even in the monastery, you still have to wash the dishes and cook meals and, and uh, take out the garbage, you know, and <laughs> so all of those, those, those things that are uh, this aspiration to integrate those things was, I think, the bridge between the, you know, the, 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 the monastic world and the worlds of corporations like Google or any place. Yeah, I, that's been my, my experience completely is when you were using the example, even when you read that book and realized that you had been asleep and that you were awake. I think a lot of times people just get into the day to day and they're in autopilot and they're doing those things. And to be able to have the space with the search inside yourself program where all of a sudden they're reconnecting to this part of themselves that's always been there that they just lost, lost touch with. Yeah. And the beautiful part, and it's it's so funny because I work with so many ambitious high achievers. There's this almost this fear. Well, if I slow down and try to reconnect with myself, that I will somehow get lazy and never do anything again in the rest of my yeah. life. Yeah. It's like, no. Yeah. This the <laughs> This is the great paradox. In fact, usually, I guess, you know, here, here in the States, the assumption is I have to be hard on myself in order to get anything done. If I weren't, if I weren't hard on myself, if I weren't critical, how would I achieve anything? And I, I always say to the people who tell me this, just for a week or two, just try being kind to yourself, try appreciating your life and 
just see how that impacts your productivity and effectiveness. And of course, people's experiences are always, oh, wow, who knew, you know, I'm actually more, I can be productive and happy. I can be productive and kind. Now, you know, it's not going to, uh, it's not going to take away all of the stresses and anxieties and pains, but it's going to shift our relationship with, with those, with the difficulties and stresses and anxieties uh, that, again, we don't have to ignore them and suppress them and push them away. In fact, we can like learn, learn from, learn from the challenges and difficulties. But again, there's something about those, those, uh, erroneous beliefs that we have about ourselves. That's a great starting point. And it, and it takes, it takes some, uh, some looking inward and from some stopping in order to become aware of, of those, those beliefs that we have beneath the surface. Absolutely. And tapping into things like self-compassion and also recognizing that it's conditioning that's been there for a long time. So of course, when you're starting to shift into a new way of doing things, and I think what you said there as well, in terms of when those things that are happening, those different difficult challenges, it's not to say that you're suddenly um, escaping the messiness that comes with being a human, but you can, uh, what I've noticed is, especially through doing meditation for many, many years, is that ability to be the observer and watching it as well, and not necessarily being pulled into it in the same way and giving yourself space to be able to feel what's showing up and feel those feelings, which can still be super uncomfortable, but you're experiencing them in a different way, as opposed to what I also see a lot of is that um, not wanting to experience and feel the feelings that are showing up and trying to suppress or repress or plow through so that they don't feel what's there. And I think there can actually be so much learning and growth. And it's actually, and again, listen, I I've had some experiences where I'm like, I would have loved to skip it. But afterwards, the learning and growth, and I try to even remind myself when I'm in it, you maybe secretly were asking for some expansion and learning and growth. And here it is, it's being delivered to you, but you don't really enjoy it when you're in it necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and also building, building on what you were just saying, you know, one of the things that was really surprising to me, you know, in, in the work at Google or, or, or any place is a, uh, you know, doing a three minute listening exercise, you know, for three minutes, just listen to what someone else is saying. And what what you invariably find is that we have so much in common, right, that our, our loneliness, our struggles, our aspirations, that we're all in transition, right, we, 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 we think everyone else has it together. So there's something there's something about seeing that we're all in this together that somehow no one ever told us that and and somehow through our through our eyes we we have a way of thinking you know that that we feel our own suffering our own transition and it's it's actually quite um, amazing when we realize that we're all in this together. It, it, it allows us to uh, be a little bit gentler with ourselves and allows us in general to be a lot more curious about the people, the people around us, about, you know, around th- their transitions, around their challenges and questions. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a re- really important, beautiful thing when we can feel that, uh, you know, the shared, the shared humanity that we have is a ongoing big life lesson. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So I'm curious with your book, when you really wanted to share that concept of compassion and accountability, tell us more about what does that look like and why is that so beneficial? And I'm going to be very conscious of when people are listening and Mark and I were talking about this. I was at the beginning of before we went live is this a compassionate accountability and all of this that we're talking about, it's not just in the workplace, it's all areas of your life when you start to really build this muscle. So tell us more about that. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, I so love writing books in that it's to me, it's an ongoing discovery process. And what I learned right away in writing about, you know, finding clarity and compassionate accountability was the book is really about accountability which is something that I notice I struggle with and that a lot of people struggle with, right? Accountability, like it, it's the, how do we hold ourselves accountable? It's a kind of being aware of that inner alignment of in what way are my values aligned with my work and my life and my actions? That's that there's that, but so much of accountability is in relationship. And in, and in the workplace, it's, it's where we are performance matters, where effectiveness matters, where getting stuff done matters, but also the way in which we, you know, what, what is the culture? What are the, you know, how do we, how are we dealing with conflict? How are we dealing with breakdowns and difficulties? So this is that whole realm of accountability, like really trying to be clear about the question, like what does success look like? How are we measuring? How do we, how will we know that we are successful beyond, you know, the financial, the finance, of course, you know, looking at the numbers is, is, is important. Um, looking at, you know, you know, headcount or projects or all those things. But then there's all the, the things that I think of as below the line, like, you know, uh, how are we doing in terms of building trust? How are we doing with creating a healthy and vibrant work culture? Uh, and, and, so this is the realm of accountability, but then how do we do, how do we, how do we do accountability and build care and trust and even love? And with, this is the word, this is where I, where I brought in the word compassion, because uh, more and more, I think the, the world of work is opening up to this, uh, this word compassion, which is kind of new to the, to the workplace, but I think is, um, is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you did a great job of sharing a lot of stories when it came to also conflict and why we don't, we shouldn't be shying away from conflict. And actually you shared a very poignant story around the conversation that you had with your daughter and being able to have some of those daring, difficult, courageous conversations. Um, so tell me a little bit more. You can feel free to share that story with your daughter or um, share something else when it comes to why do we need to be really conscious of the fact that conflicts is not something that we want to be avoiding? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's part of the human condition is that our experiences are, are invariably going to be different, right? There's that, um, I'm often quoting, uh, it's the, the psychiatrist R.D. Lang who wrote uh, The Politics of Experience, where he says, you know, I cannot experience your experience. You cannot experience my experience. Therefore, we are invisible to each other. Now, this is a bit more cynical than I like to be, but it point it points to that 
you know, we are always having, you know, different experiences. So I, I find that in the workplace, it's, it's just amazing to see how different people are experiencing each other. Um, how different, like this question of what does success look like, that, that, that needs to be unpacked regularly because it's not a simple, it's, there's not simple, you know, one, one sentence answers to that, that, you know, that how we're defining success, competence, effectiveness, you know, these things need to be addressed and talked about openly. You know, the story that you're referring to, you know, there was a, a pretty big misunderstanding that I had with my daughter some, some years ago, where, you know, she, she actually moved into my house uh, with a certain expectation about what was going to happen. And somehow it was her, her experience and mine were really different. And she was angry with me, upset with me. And, um, and we needed, you know, a after things calmed down and, you know, I think things got better. Um, I described going on a walk with her and turning and stopping and saying, uh, how are we doing? And, and realizing that, that my own tendency and the, I think the human tendency to not ask that question, because what will I learn if I, you know, I mean, what I found out was, you know, she's still angry with me in a certain way. It wasn't, everything wasn't perfect, but we were, we were on the mend. You know, and and um, and I was able to say to her, "I hear you. I hear that there's still some things to be resolved, and and I need you to know that all I all that really matters to me is our love and and being able to speak openly and heartfully with each other, even if you're angry with me. I want to I want to know about it. And these are you know these are not easy conversations to have, and they're particularly hard to have in the workplace where it's our livelihood and there's power differentials, right? So how do you have the question with your boss? Hey, how are we doing? Like, uh, you know, we tend to wait for these year, you know, end of year performance reviews when those are terrible. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to wait to have those like, hey, let's talk about what's working well, what could be better, what, what are the surprises? But that takes, that takes ongoing, trust and connection to, to, to skillfully have those, those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I can think of so many of the leaders that I have coached where we were talking through and even doing some role playing and being with the sensations when they're going to ask some of those questions and so many of the times, and, and I want to be conscious of some conversations don't go as well as they'd hope, but so many conversations they actually say when they were showing up heart to heart with that conversation and going in with that compassion and setting those intentions that actually what ended up happening is it really deepens that relationship in such a beautiful and strong way because they were sharing openly, they were sharing vulnerably and the other person might've also been seeing things differently and wanted to share and, um, and acknowledging that sometimes it's, having a safe space to be able to even practice and have those dialogues because they can feel very intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's a kind of listening practice and it's a practice of being able to, uh, to drop our stories, right. That, that, I mean, we, I think we're all, 
what 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 people find surprising is how tender we all are really even you know even the even the you know whether it's the toughest looking guys or or women uh that that there is you know that there's a there's a way that especially in the workplace you know that we show up with a certain kind of presence and decisiveness and we've got it all together but you know beneath the surface most of us have pretty pretty tender hearts and we are easily uh, there's easily misunderstandings there's easily uh hurt you know and and that we um we you know we have this evolutionary process where anytime we feel hurt or threatened we generally go you know right to blame we generally go right to you know fight or flight uh you know either either way we're overreacting or 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 underreacting and this is happening all the time in in you know not only in our families in our workplaces so to me this is this is like core practice is is becoming more aware of our own our own pattern are we someone who tends to avoid conflict or do we overreact to conflict yes. you know those i get asked a lot about how do you work with those difficult people yes. and and again as i say in the book i tend to say maybe are you one of those difficult people <laughs> i <'Cause> love that <laughs> we're all i mean uh, you know we're all difficult people to others sometimes um that it especially in the workplace where you know where there is so much pressure to get stuff done and there's money and status and hierarchy involved power power differentials so this it's an ongoing practice of uh you know, clarity being being clear noticing when we are overreacting or underreacting noticing the stories of blame that we may be conjuring up you know one of the um one of the core lessons you know is that we you know we judge others by the impact their words and actions have on us and we judge ourselves by our intentions right, right. this is a, a core uh lesson you know that we we we're we're all good people right and we are we're all good people but man as soon as someone says something or does something that hurts us like we go right to coming up with some uh, some story about their intention or motivation. So this is a core, like, <laughs> beginning and advanced lesson in working with conflict is this separating out the impact that someone's words or actions have on us and being curious about their motivation or their intention. Yeah, I think curiosity is incredibly powerful. There's something that you said there too, I'd love for you to expand on, because I think we talk a lot about overreacting, but can you talk a little bit more around underreacting? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the percentages are, but I think in general, there's many, many more underreactors than overreactors. This is avoiding conflict, avoiding having a difficult conversation, avoiding difficult emotions, because it's safe, it feels it feels safe. It feels it feels like there's a, a safety in it as opposed to feeling the conflict and then having to decide when or how to take action or to have those difficult conversations. You know, this was um, huge for me personally. The only times I've ever gotten into trouble in the world of work was avoiding conflict, including uh, I'm I famously uh, was uh, terminated from a company I founded and 
and I look back at, at how I, I avoided having some difficult conversations with some of my key employees, some of my board members. And I vowed after that I was not ever going to uh, run away from conflict and avoid conflict. And it really helped me in as being CEO in my next company. Uh, I wasn't perfect, you know, and I, I had to notice my own tendency to shy away from but it's like, but it was like noticing, noticing conflict, feeling conflict. You know, of course, my uh, you know, relationship with my wife is a great teacher as well. You know, it used to be, uh, I, I can remember, uh, you know, it would be like, two days later, she said, what? <laughs> and so I felt I found myself getting quicker and quicker to notice, you know, to notice that that feeling of ouch, or that, that like, some disconnect about, you know, what was being said to me or how it was being said to me or what I was being asked to do. And it, it takes training for many of us who are who are conflict avoidant to, to be aware and alert about what we're feeling and to notice to notice the, the disconnect or the ouch, uh, whether it's small, medium or large to notice it, we don't have to act on all of them. But there's something about bringing awareness to what's happening here, how I'm feeling what's happening here. And, and part of it too, the other part of the practice is to be aware of others feelings and to try as much as we can to be curious about their their experience. I think I think what you're talking about is really important because I think there's a lot of attention given to more like the aggressive and the big emotions and we talk a lot about that um, the, the the big reactions but we don't talk about all of those times that the conversation that never happened yeah. that needed to happen and yeah. the 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 emotions I experiences I've done debriefs with emotional intelligence assessments hundreds and hundreds over the years and how often it's the like well i just think it's better to avoid feeling feelings and i'm the type of person when there's problems there's no emotions i'm like oh there are emotions you're masking mm -hmm. the emotions but i guarantee there's some emotions in there mm -hmm. um i'm just thinking of because you do um so much great work with what was developed as well as the the um search inside yourself i've I've read the book and learned a lot about the program and have friends who are certified on it. It just sounds like such a, an incredible program um, for people who are listening and they're thinking to themselves, you know, I want to take some steps to start really building my emotional intelligence and mindfulness. And I'd love to be able to even promote the meditation as someone who's a big firm believer on that. But, you know, they might be early on their journey. They're starting to awaken what kind of recommendations would you give to them to start to get a little bit more uh, comfortable in these areas? Yeah, I think there is so much that you can read right now. I, I'd, I'd recommend, of course, any of my books, uh, which, <laughs> which there, is, there are several, but, but um, you know, I, I, I recommend anything by the um, uh, Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, um, he wrote books called uh, The Miracle of Mindfulness or Being Peace or Peace is Every Step. Uh, Pema Chodron is another great, um, very accessible uh, Buddhist, Buddhist teacher, uh, not in the Zen tradition. She's more in the Tibetan tradition, but, but she's very, uh, very accessible. So I would say reading and, and also um, 
you know, the, it doesn't take much to, to experiment with having a meditation practice. I generally recommend find another person or a group that you can sit with. The good news is they're everywhere these days, and especially, you know, whether it's online or, or in person. Um, I, I think that meditation is a group sport, not an individual sport. Mm. Uh, there's something about doing sitting with with other people that I think is um, uh, really, really uh, supportive. And journal writing, like actually having a practice of doing a little bit of writing regularly about what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm avoiding, what I'm not avoiding. So those would be, you know, uh, reading, practicing, writing, I think are, are, are really good places to start. Amazing. And if we were going to look at it from the perspective of the organization and organizations really recognizing compassion and accountability and making emotional intelligence and mindfulness, something that I've talked a long time ago for many years, I don't call them soft skills. I call them human skills. And that's why I talk Mm -hmm. about humanizing the workplace. Um, So if we're going to think about ways to be able to help companies to usher in this kind of culture, what would you what do you want to see more of from companies? Where are some yeah. growth edges? So this is my uh, I find myself recommending this practice, and it's one of my favorite practices, which is simply you go first. Whatever it is you are wanting from your company, from your relationship, don't complain. Don't go home and, and complain or, or, or to your, you know, to your friends about, you know, all the things that you can, it's okay. You can talk, you can, you, it's okay to talk about it, but then, you know, if there's not enough kindness, if there's not enough listening, if there's not enough recognition, boy, I'm never recognized for my good work. Well, you go recognize other people, bring that, bring that in. So I think it's, I think, like this aspiration to have a more healthy, connected, vibrant workplace. I think we all want that. And, uh, you know, cynicism is easy. Uh, trust, trust and, you know, uh, healthy cultures takes ongoing work. And it takes, you know, again, it's, uh, it's very um, empowering that practice of not waiting for other people to change it. Now, and there's also having those conversations like, hey, what would it take? What can we do to create a healthier workplace here? Um, you know, what can we do? What, what can I do? What can you do? What can we all do to be more effective? How can we work together in a way that is more effective? What, what are, what's blocking us from having more open conversations? What's blocking us from uh, building more trust. What's blocking us from what? Yeah. What? And you know, what's what's most important to us? How do we want to? You know, I, I think for the most part, life is too short to not enjoy and appreciate and love the work that you're doing. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. One of the other things that you talked about that I uh, really appreciate and something that I think is really important. People are looking for this is helping to people to get more into their stretch zones. What do you think that looks like if we're going to start getting more into that stretch zone and being able to really reach our potential? What do you what, what, what would you tell leaders about that? Well, I think, you know, I think tying it to I think that you go first practice is a stretch. It's, it's you know, it's a stretch for me. You know, I again, it's one thing to say these things, but to actually 
right? To actually step in and be more curious about other people, have those conversations. Again, and again, we can practice, you know, we can, it's good to practice, you don't, you don't have to go right to the hardest conversation, right? If you're, if, you know, if you've really been struggling, you know, with someone, you, you might want to start with someone where it's a smaller, a, you start with the smaller struggle, the smaller gap and see how it goes. And, and you can build up to, okay, now, I, now I'm ready to, you know, uh, go to my boss and say, how are we doing? What, what can I do better to be more effective here? Or, or even hopefully your boss or whoever you got will, will turn it around and say, oh, and tell me too, what can nice. I do? What can I, you know, it's not, it's, it's never just one way. It's usually a, a both ways. What can, what can we do to be more effective with each other? So that's, again, there's various, I think, uh, stretch zones within, within that practice. Yes, I think that's really great. I think that just taking a step back and getting intentional about some of those conversations um, is is huge. And I, I say the same thing. We're not going to go to the, the highest stakes ones. We're going to go to something that's small and start to build that muscle. And 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 also, I think some of it is around that self trust too, right? Because I think sometimes people struggle to have that those conversations because they don't have that trust in themselves and being able to gain that confidence through having more of those dialogues and, and seeing the benefits that come with it. I think what we also need to be aware of as we're building all of this is around having the psychological safety too. And I know you've talked about some of those things you'd like to see more of to create the psychological safety. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, again, tying it back to what we were saying earlier about how vulnerable we all are right that that it's easy to not feel safe and again i think i think that practice you know here the you go first was but you bring your vulnerability into the workplace you bring your admitting you know uh, places where you might not be uh, feeling so conf- confident and competent being vulnerable not not having to know anything being able to say you know i don't know when you when you don't know asking for help like these are uh very concrete ways to create a bit more psychological safety in the workplace yeah it's it's easy for workplaces to not feel safe it's easy for people to feel um <laughs> i could remember uh a a ceo bringing me in to his company because he wanted psychological safety. And I met with, you know, the, his six direct reports. The first thing they said was, is he going to fire me? <laughs> like, I mean, they were constantly on, on that. I like, like, I mean, he had no idea that the fear that he created, that yeah. was not his intention, yeah. but, but without, without intending to, there was that like people didn't feel he wasn't communicating his you know respect that he actually felt what he was communicating was he wanted people to do better so it's interesting you know as a leader to walk that line of we want energy we want people to be energized we want people to be you know again it's that we want people to find that stretch zone and but within a container of of safety in a container of connection and appreciation and that that takes real ongoing skill as a as a leader to create that that kind of a culture 
Absolutely. So the name of the show is Inspirational Leadership, and I've already heard you talk about some of these qualities, but I want to give you a chance to be able to share if you were thinking about what you would love leaders to aspire to more when it comes to creating an environment that is around inspirational leader uh, leadership. What are some of those characteristics or behaviors you'd like to see? Yeah, I think one of the great skills for leaders um, is to be able to both um, express your vision, right? That 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 there needs to be a sense of uh, a purpose and meaning in in that you're bringing that, and also that you're you're modeling that, um, and also the sense of uh, not sugarcoating, right? That you you have a way as a leader of being very direct about what's working and what's not working. And I think this ongoing kind of cautious optimism, this, this inspirational that you are, you are uh, inspiring through, not only through how you express your vision, but in the way that you are, that you are, you are committed to modeling uh, the kind of leader that you are wanting from others, that you, you walk your talk um, yeah, as much as you possibly can and there's also i think a kind of vulnerability in that as well that you're being that you're be real right mm-hmm. that you're uh, confident and humble confident mm-hmm. and humble i think are great uh, ongoing qualities for uh, an inspirational leader yeah absolutely um so as we start to wrap up today's conversation i always like to give my guests an opportunity to leave a final thought of whatever is showing up for you in this moment Oh, maybe, um, you know, I spent 15 years uh, running a, uh, a greeting card and calendar company. So I consider myself a professional quote collector. Um, so uh, w- one, of my, uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, is by the uh, writer and farmer Wendell Berry, who said, uh, be joyful, though you've considered all the facts. Be joyful, though you've considered all the facts. And to me, the um, to me, this is uh, kind of a almost like a definition of mindfulness or mindful leadership is to uh, to feel everything, right? To not avoid anything, to really let it all in, all of the pains and strains and difficulties, and to find a sense of um, joy or appreciation right within within that that's um that's my aspiration for how i try to live my life and every once in a while it works and <laughs> perfectly imperfect we are all perfectly, works perfectly in progress <laughs> um mark where can people learn more about you and your work um my website is marklesser.net and that's m-a-r-c-l-e-s-s-e-r.net and um Yeah. And my latest book, Finding Clarity, it's available anywhere books are sold. Yes. Please check out the book. Mark, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. What a a treat. And for everyone, wherever you are in the world, we're saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening, sending tons of love. Bye-bye. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.